This morning's reading is from Acts chapter 20, and it's verses 1 to 12. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up to be dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, are we on? Uh, Fair play to Rachel for all those names. (laughs) I've had a tough time this week going, how do you pronounce that one? Uh, there we go. Uh, good morning. My name's Andrew. I'm one of the elders here at Village. Um, if you don't know me, um, this morning we're continuing our series in the book of Acts, which we called Living as Resurrection People. Um, and I think it's good to remind ourselves that we, we called the series Living as Resurrection People because this uh, book describes what the people of God did after the resurrection of Jesus and how the resurrection of Jesus actually had a real impact on their lives. Last week, uh, just to remind you quickly, um, Lucas, uh, we, Lucas took us through this passage where um, Paul was in Ephesus, and actually the preaching of the gospel, the declaring of God's word, had such an effect that it didn't just change people spiritually, that it brought about like, societal change. It literally changed the, the nature of that city so that there were riots There were riots because of the gospel was being preached. And we see this theme uh, right throughout the book of Acts where the the gospel of Jesus is preached, uh, God demonstrates his power, and Jesus is magnified. And that theme continues into into our passage today. So let's kind of dive in. Whenever I I came to this passage, I think it's funny you hear it and, and you're like, well, this is a bit strange, isn't it? Because... The first six verses seem to be about just Paul's travel plans, aren't they? He's like, well, we went here and we, did, we went there and these guys came and then we did this and we went there. And then the second half is kind of just about this church service where a guy falls asleep and don't fall asleep this morning. I'm not the apostle Paul, okay? I'm just saying, don't fall asleep. Uh, this guy falls asleep and he falls out the window and then he gets healed and then, and you're like, what is all this about? But there's something deeper going on underneath the surface. Uh, just to remind you guys, the book of Acts was written by Luke, who also wrote Luke's gospel, and he was a doctor, an actual physician. He was also an historian. Do you say a historian or an historian? I don't know. 
He was a historian. And uh, other historians from around this time actually uh, really thought highly of Luke. He was known for his meticulous uh, kind of attention to detail. So whenever he's writing in a list of people's names and a list of places that they went to, we need to pay attention because Luke's not the kind of guy that would, leave, that would just put stuff in willy-nilly or leave stuff out. In fact, he used to go back to places where Paul had been and make sure that he had got the names right and make sure he got the places right and the distances and all that kind of stuff. Um, so why? Why is this in here? What, what reason are these two kind of halves of this passage in here? Well, this passage, these 12 verses, kind of are bookended by this concept of encouragement, right? Uh, this wee section, is, it starts with encouragement, um, and it finishes with encouragement. Look at verse 1. It says, after the uproar ceased, that was the riot I was talking about, and we, we studied last week in Ephesus. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for, for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell, and departed from Macedonia. And when he had gone through, in verse 2, when he had gone through the re, those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And look at, verse, look at verse 12, the end of our passage. It says, I'm going to lift this up because I had a bad eyesight. Um, look at verse 12. And they took the youth away alive. That was the guy who fell asleep and fell out the window and he was raised back to life. And were not a little comforted. They were greatly comforted. Now, this, is, this word for comfort used here is exactly the same word as Paul or as Luke has just used for encouragement. And it's exactly the same word that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit. Open your Bibles. You should have your Bibles open. Bring your Bible to church. Uh, turn to John chapter 14 with me, please. Keep your Bible open. We're going to be in the passage a lot today, and we're going to bounce around a, few, a couple of different other passages as well. This is John chapter 14, and Jesus is promising the Holy Spirit, and this is how he describes him. Verse 15 and 16, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Okay, so how do we keep his commands? Well, we're not going to do it on our own. Look at verse 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will send you another helper. And then this word that, 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 that Jesus uses here for helper is this Greek word paraclete, and it literally it means, it means to help to exhort, to comfort, to encourage. It's this package of all these things rolled into one. We have this one word for encourage and this other word for comfort and this other word for exhort and this other word for help. But in the Bible, all those things are rolled into one. They're, they're embodied in the Holy Spirit. For example, look at our word comfort, right? What do we think of when we think of comfort? We think of coming alongside someone and putting an arm around them, a shoulder to cry on. That kind of thing, when, when, when someone's grieving, we think, I'm going to comfort them through this time. But th- th- that word literally comes from two Latin words smashed together, come and fort, with strength. So there's this idea that when we comfort someone, we're imparting strength to them. Now, I'm no linguist, and there's far more educated people in the room than me, but my point is this. There's a type of encouragement on display here in Acts 20 that is the same in nature as the Holy Spirit himself. Isn't that wonderful? This type of encouragement that Paul and his friends are giving to each other and the church are giving to each other is the same in nature as the Holy Spirit himself. In other words, there's a type of Holy Spirit encouragement that we as Christians, we as the church, impart to one another. And I'm going to call it this morning Spirit-filled encouragement. So, what is Spirit-filled encouragement? We're going to look at four lessons this morning. Uh, First slide there, please, Stephen. I forgot to ask you if you do the slides. I assume that's okay. You're at the back, so thumbs up. Um, We're going to look at uh, four lessons from this passage this morning. 
And we're going to see how the church gives and receives spirit-filled encouragement through giving, sacrificial giving for the needs of the body of Christ. We're going to look at how we, 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 we give and receive spirit-filled encouragement through visiting, that is spending time face-to-face with brothers and sisters, and also through serving. And it's not serving, serving each other, it's serving alongside one another. And then finally, we're going to look at the, the spirit-filled encouragement, the Holy Spirit encouragement that comes when we gather together to hear the Word of God and to, to take the Lord's Supper, to take communion, to break bread together. Don't worry about scribbling those down. They'll be on the screen. That, uh, they'll come up on the screen. Okay, so first one. This passage describes Paul's journeys around this time. Um, and we see uh, back in chapter 19 that he has decided that he wants to go back to Jerusalem. Um, but, you know, he's an encouraging guy, so he's going to go through Macedonia and Greece um, on his way to Jerusalem. And one of the reasons that he wants to go to Jerusalem, if we flip over to chapter 24, you can see this, is because he wants to bring gifts to the needy Christians in Jerusalem. Israel, that area, was like kind of a backwater area of the Roman Empire. And people by nature, there were, were not by nature, people were just um, situationally were, were poor. They didn't have as much. A lot of the Christians there were in need. So, so Paul wants to bring them gifts. And so he goes, he goes around Macedonia and Achaia, it says. Achaia is another word for Greece. And he collects offerings. And how do we know that this is what he was doing? Well, luckily... When he's traveling around this time, this is when he also writes uh, the book of Romans, which is a letter to the church in Rome. I love this. I, <laughs> I just think the capacity this man had. Uh, like he's, he's, he's traveling around. He's in riots. He's being attacked. There's plots on his life. And he writes like the book of Romans and the book of Second uh, Corinthians on this journey. You're like, well, how do you do this? In Romans 15, we know that this is what he's doing. It says, at present, however, I, that's Paul writing, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia, that's Greece, have been pleased to make some contribution for the purse among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. That's Romans 15. See, Paul sees giving as a duty. It's a duty of the Christian. They owe it to them, he says. For Paul, giving to the needy among the believers is part of sharing the blessings they've received. Paul says they, that is the Christians in Macedonia and Greece, and Greece ought to be of service to them in material blessings. Now, I would say that this is, this is definitely seems to be giving that is over and above their regular giving to their local church. This is Paul going and saying, hey, your brothers and sisters down in Jerusalem, they're really in need here. And of course, they're giving generously and gladly. What Paul is talking about here is being generous with one another. There's this idea that arises then that spirit-filled encouragement isn't just a wee word here or there. It's not just going, good job, you're doing a really good job. Uh, oh yeah, you did great with that. Uh, or we always say, I would encourage you to... That's not what Paul's talking about here. This is much deeper. This is giving out of what you have so that you can strengthen other people. This is what it means to encourage one another in the Holy Spirit. Financial and material generosity are powerful encouragements because in a special way they represent the the generosity of God and the unity of the church. When we give to one another, we represent how God has given to us and his generosity. 
And I just want to point out that this is already happening in this church, and I love it. Uh, I, I was kind of like asking a few people, hey, have you got any stories of generosity? And li- literally, I could spend the next hour talking about people's generosity in this church. Um, personally, I've received, I've received uh, gifts recently when we needed particular, we had particular needs. Um, I heard of one couple who received a new, a new dryer from, a, from other people because they, they knew that their dryer was broke down and didn't have money to get it fixed, so they just arrived with a new dryer. I've heard of people getting a new bed because their bed was old and janky and nobody likes an old bed, so like a new bed arrives. Like, what? That's amazing. There was no one, no one is going, no, no one in this church should be, but will be in need. That's what I'm trying to say. No one in this church should be without. If you are without this morning, you need to make yourself known to us. We will gladly be generous to one another. But the bottom line is this. If the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you will be a generous person. If the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you'll be moved to generosity. He will move you to put your money, your possessions on the line for your brothers and sisters because we're not separate anymore. We are one in Christ. So I would urge you, be generous. Be generous people. Let us be known for being sacrificial with our money and possessions. It's a sign that you're spiritual alive. And there's also another point in this before we move on. (coughs) Being generous with one another is a witness. Such a witness. And let me explain why. In John 13, Jesus says that everyone will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Well, in a consumeristic society, a materialistic society where money and possessions are the be-all and end-all, where uh, they are kind of the actual goal of your life, where money and possessions are the measure of success, nothing speaks louder to the world than when we don't care about that stuff to the point that we can be sacrificially generous with it. We can talk the world's language, right? We can display a mighty message to them because we're talking their language of money and possessions. Actually, this stuff isn't that important to me personally. You know, I'm going to give this away. Does that make sense? We can be generous to one another, and it's actually a witness and a sign to the world of what God is like. So be generous with one another. This is the type of encouragement that was going on here. Okay, so that's spirit-filled encouragement through giving. Our next point then is spirit-filled encouragement through visiting. Uh, Paul went to great lengths uh, to never be on his own. It's one of the things I love about when you read through Acts and you read through his letters, um, you see that he, didn't, he never wanted to be on his own, right? It was often the main purpose for his trips was to go and, and be with people. Um, you see this through his letters as well. In Romans 1, he says to the church there, I long to see you. Philippians 1 he says to the church in Philippi, for God is my witness how I yearn for all of you. And then he writes to Timothy, who's kind of like his, what's it, what's it called when someone's your mentor, but you're the uh, mentee, mento, like Joey and friends, I'm a mento. Uh, when he, had go, it, it, he says to Timothy, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. There's a deep joy that Paul gets from being with his brothers and sisters. And Paul is going to already establish churches around Macedonia, and he's, and he's uh, giving them much encouragement. That's what our, that's what our passage says in verse 2. 
For Paul, there's so much value placed on being face-to-face, in person, with the believers, that he goes halfway around the known world to do it. And there's a lesson that we need to take from Paul this morning. We need to spend time with other believers. We need to be in the company of, of people who love Jesus. I'm not saying for one second that we, we form a holy huddle and never, never spend time with people who don't love Jesus. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm saying that we need that is so important because in doing that, we build each other up. Paul, when he's writing to the church in Thessalonica, incidentally, coincidentally, probably one of the churches that he's visited in this passage, he says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. He's talking about temptation and sin coming in. He's saying, build each other up. When we spend time together, we build each other up. And if we're not being built up by one another, that's when temptation comes in. That's when it becomes easy to take your eyes off Jesus, doesn't it? How many, of, how many sins do I commit? How many times do I walk away from Jesus? The majority of the times it's when I'm on my own. Isn't that right? When you take your eyes off Jesus, it's when, Jesus, it's when it becomes easy to, to just look at that porn on the internet and, and for, forget the promises that real intimacy and satisfaction comes from Jesus. When, when you're not being built up by your brothers and sisters, it's when it becomes easy to allow your, your body, body image to consume you instead of clinging to the promise that Jesus only, or that God looks at the heart. If you're in a place where you're not regularly being built up by brothers and sisters, I guarantee you, I guarantee you that you will find it harder to follow the way of Jesus. Um, a couple of times, uh, a couple of t- humble brag, a couple of times uh, in my life I've done 100-mile cycles on my own, um, and it is miserable, miserable. You, you, you go slow, you don't push yourself, there's a temptation to stop every two miles, uh, you want to turn back and go home, you want to quit, and this is very, very different than doing a 100-mile cycle with a, with a bunch of mates. Um, John and I, and Tommy's not here, and some others, we, we did, uh, we've done a couple of big cycles where we cycle from here to Paris and Amsterdam, Berlin, and on, when you're in the middle of that, you may be in pain, and the temptation is still there to quit, but you build each other up right? You help each other when you get a puncture or a broken chain. You, you laugh at each other's jokes. You, you make jokes to hide the pain in your legs. <laughs> or the fact that you haven't been to the toilet in three days. What's that all about? He's like, oh, never mind. <laughs> eh, we'll skip over. TMI, TMI. But there's this, there's this real sense that we build each other up when we're together. And if we're on our own, we'll, we'll be so tempted to give up. None of us can walk this path alone. Uh, I, I want to emphasize this point, and it's a point that I make all the time. None of us were saved to be isolated Christians. You, you, we, we talk about salvation a lot, and that's great. But let's start talking more about adoption. We were adopted into the family of God. You're all my brothers and sisters. Like I needed more sisters. But you you get the point. We are the family of God. We're the community of believers. We make up the body of Christ. To be a follower of Jesus is to be part of this church. And this is one of the reasons why we do core groups. 
Each of the letters in core stands for something different, but the E stands for encouragement. Literally 25% of the reason we do core groups is for this, is for building each other up. If you're not part of a core, get in one. Uh, ask your MC leaders. Um, they should know all about it and, 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 and just get with other believers and build each other up. Encouragement face-to-face is meant to be a staple of the Christian diet, so let's not neglect it. So, encouragement, spirit-filled encouragement through giving, generosity and sacrificial giving, spirit-filled encouragement through being face-to-face, and then we move on to spirit-filled encouragement through serving. Now, when I say serving, I'm not talking about serving one another. That's very important, but what's going on here? In this passage, is specifically uh, encouragement through serving with one another, a serving, a serving alongside each other on mission. Let's look at verses four and five. Uh, I'll attempt these names. So Peter, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians Tychius and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. What do we see here in this group of of people? We see a group of nine guys. There's the seven companions. There's the apostle Paul. And we know Luke's there because at this point he starts using us and we again. So there's nine of them. It's like Lord of the Rings going to Mordor. Sopater from Berea. Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica. Just to point out there, Aristarchus and Secundus are literally aristocracy and a second-level slave. And here they are on mission together. Isn't that beautiful? I wish I could go into that in more t- detail, but I don't have time. Gaius from Derb and Timothy was from a town called Lystra, which is right beside Derbe, so they're from the same region. And then from Asia, you have Tychius and Trophimus. I'm sure in heaven someday they'll be like, man, you really slaughtered our names, but there we go. And what does this group show us? I want to point out that it shows us that all these missionaries are from young churches. They're from churches that have only been around in the book of Acts. These churches were young and inexperienced, but they were committed to spreading the gospel, so they gave their people away as missionaries to help Paul go and plant more churches and spread the gospel. Church planting isn't a solo effort. It's not. There may be one guy or one couple who take the lead and are the catalyst, but churches aren't planted by individuals. I mean, Lucas will tell you this. And as we, as we move towards planting our second congregation in October, we want to replicate this. We want to replicate what's going on in the book of Acts. Yes, me and Haley feel called uh, to, 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 to lead the team. And yes, we believe that, that God wants us to lead that charge. But we're not doing it alone. We can't do it alone. We need you to partner with us. Encourage us by partnering with us as we go on mission. And there's varying degrees of that. I'm going I'm to ask all of you to partner with us through prayer and through giving generously, please. And that's a joke. Not really a joke. Actually, anyway, never mind. Giving generously through serving us as we need to paint the building or whatever it may be. But there's some of you there's some of you that we need you to partner with us in the same way as these seven guys partnered with the Apostle Paul, who literally will come with us and walk the same path with us. Consider that. Consider encouraging us in the way that these guys were encouraging the Apostle Paul 
serving alongside him. Haley and I aren't planting a church. I want to say that Village isn't even planting a church. The truth is, God is planting his church. And we need you to partner with us. We need to partner together to join him on that mission. Quickly then, I just want to highlight how is serving with one another spirit-filled encouragement. That's a bit like the cycling thing I was talking about earlier. There's something that happens when people share a common goal and are working towards it, right? We've, I'm sure a lot of you have experienced this. If you've ever been on a, like a short-term mission trip or something like that, the first time I did this, um, there was a group of eight or ten of us. We were all students. We went to serve this wee kind of small church in uh, rural Bolivia. Um, and we were there for about a month, I think. And during that time, we didn't really spend lots of time just hanging out, getting to know each other. It was like we were working, helping with building stuff. We were uh, practically serving the needy in the community. We were running outreach stuff for kids. And we didn't really sit around that much. But what happened was, as we served together, as we prayed together, as we worshiped together, as we ate meals together, as we got on with the business of being on mission together, we formed really strong bonds I mean, in a short space of time, these people became uh, like brothers and sisters to me. And my point is this. If you want to be a strong community, if you want your missional community to be a strong, bonded community, be active on mission together. The, the, being active on mission is an act of community building. And I don't want you to feel pressure. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying if you're a brand new missional community that you should, you know, of course, spend time in unity and, and being blessed in the unity of the brothers that the Psalms talk about. But serve alongside each other. Seek opportunities to share the kingdom of God with your friends, with your colleagues, with your, with your neighbors, with whatever, serve your community in whatever way it is, and do it together. This is how you form really strong community. And this is why we have missional communities in our church. Communities that... Um, communities of believers that serve alongside each other as they seek to reach their particular context with the gospel. We don't have communities for community's sake. This is why we don't do home groups. This is why we don't do small groups. This is why we do missional communities because our communities are communities for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. So, we've looked at spirit-filled encouragement through giving generously, We've looked at uh, how we spend time face-to-face -face with one another. We've looked at serving together. Our final one then is serving, or spirit-filled encouragement through gathering together. Now, what I mean by gathering together and meeting together, it's not just meeting up for a coffee or a beer. It's not when your core groups get together. It's not even when your missional community gets together for Bible study and for dinner. What I'm talking about is what's described in this passage in Acts 20, when, when they were gathered together for the explicit purposes of hearing the word of God declared and taking the Lord's Supper together. Look at verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day, and, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. What we see in this passage is the earliest record that it was the norm for the churches to gather on the first day of the week. We don't 
it's, Lucas has mentioned this before, some parts are prescriptive and some are descriptive. So we don't take everything they were doing and do that. Otherwise, we'd be here to midnight or tomorrow morning, actually, and no one wants that. We don't meet in an upper room of a house with lamps burning. But we know from this passage and from subsequent passages that there's a pattern that emerges. The pattern is you meet in the first day of the week, the gospel's preached, and you break bread together. This is why we do this. The first day that's mentioned there in verse 7 is literally the first day of the week after Sabbath. So the Jews uh, used to meet on the Sabbath, or the night before the Sabbath, they would have the Sabbath, which was the rest day. But the Christians started meeting on the first day of the week because that's the day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead. And there's an application point here. Every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Every Sunday is Easter Sunday. If you're a bit lethargic about coming to church, think about that. We come here because we want to declare to each other that Jesus is risen. The God that we worship, the King that we serve, is not dead. Happy Easter. And there's two things that we see that they, that, that they do that I want to look at. Firstly, we see that Paul preached the word, and then secondly, they broke bread. In other words... There was encouragement through um, word and sacrament, scripture and sacrament. Now we'll look at them separately so we can explain them each. Firstly, the word. It says here that Paul spoke for a long time. What does that tell us? It tells us that there was a thirst for the word of God, that they desired to hear the word of God. They, they knew there was, there's a, probably abnormal that he, would, that, that, that he would preach all night. And I mean, it's sometimes when people are preaching, it feels like they're preaching all night, but I'm talking about myself, but they knew Paul was leaving the next day, and they wanted to make the most of him being there. They're like, Paul, teach us. There was a hunger for the Lord's word, for God's word, and so they, they, they allowed him to speak all night, and that's a sign of a healthy church, but then we see in verses 9 to 11, this, it's, it's almost like it's, it'd be funny if someone hadn't died, but then he comes back to life, so you're like, is it okay for it to be funny? I don't know. I think it's kind of funny. If someone dies, they come back to life, I think you can laugh about it. We see this, uh, this account of this young man, Eutychus, and he's sitting in the window. Um, it's obviously hot. There's, Luke mentions again his detail. There's lamps burning, so there's fumes and smoke. So he falls asleep, and he falls uh, from the second floor down to the ground and dies. And Paul comes down, uh, brings him back to life, while well, God brings him back to life, and then he comes upstairs and just keeps on preaching. My first point is, if someone fell asleep when Paul was preaching, I don't feel bad if anyone's sleeping here this morning. I'm kind of off the hook a wee bit. But why is the story of Eutychus mentioned at all? Well, I would say that the focus isn't on the miracle that took place. I don't know how you could read this passage and think that the focus is meant to be the fact that a guy came back to life. As encouraging as that miracle was... Paul doesn't even stop to focus on it. He keeps on preaching. He goes back to preaching. The church allow him after that to go back to preaching. They only actually took the young man home in the morning after he had finished. They didn't be like, oh my goodness, you've been dead now you're alive. We should probably take, you need to go and lie down or something. No, they're like, uh, Paul's in the middle here. We're learning from the scriptures. So you're alive? Yep, good. Let's get back to it. Now, I'm not saying that if someone dies in here this morning, I'm going to keep preaching. But what I am saying is that there seems to be in this church gathering a focus on the Word of God, a hunger for it. The miracle exists as a, as a demonstration, as a powerful supernatural demonstration, but a demonstration of the Word that Paul is preaching. 
You see, these demonstrations always point to Jesus, always point to the thing that the word is pointing to. The word of God was the most important thing to this church, and so it should be with us. This is why the only thing we do from on this pulpit is read the scriptures. And why do we do that? It's symbolic that everything else that happens here, even the preaching, the worship, the break, everything happens under the authority and guidance of the scriptures. Uh, a wee while back, uh, Finley, who's my wee boy, he was like sitting with his Bible and it wasn't like, he has a couple of like story, like storybook Bibles, the pictures and stuff. This was like a proper, you know, like, you know, I was gonna say adult Bible, a proper Bible and he's sitting with it and I was like, someone gave it to him because, uh, or when he got dedicated and it's really, it means a lot and, and all that kind of stuff. So I was like, I don't want him to rip this or like crank up the pages. So I was like trying to take it off and he was like, no, this is the word of God about Jesus. And I was like, Calm down, Billy Graham. Like, I mean, we know. I'm just saying, uh, but he's right, isn't he? He's right. Got a wee bit like pulpit thumpy on me. Jeepers, watch out for that. Maybe he'll be up here someday. Who knows? But he's right. It's the word of God about Jesus. And without it, we're lost. Without it, we have nothing. There's, I was saying to Lucas earlier, there's a whole sermon series we could do about the importance of the word of God and the importance of Scripture. Um, but I've got about three minutes, so let's try and do it all there. Turn with me to John chapter six. Such a, uh, such a beautiful, beautiful, uh, just wee episode of Jesus' life in here. Verse 60, towards the end of the chapter. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And then uh, Jesus goes on and further on down in 67, many of his disciples at this point have abandoned him because they find his teaching too difficult. And so they desert him. And Jesus says, 67, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And I love this. I just love this little moment between Peter and Jesus. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go, guys? Where are we going to go? What are you going to turn to? Where are you going to find your life? This is why in Village we, we attempt to create a culture of the word dwelling among us. Because Jesus has the words of eternal life. So that's the word. And they were encouraged through the word in this church in Acts 20. Next, the sacrament. The other part of their gathering that we see described here was the breaking of bread. Um, we don't have time again to go into all the detail. But... We know that what Luke is describing here isn't just sharing a meal. It probably and actually certainly included that, but it was also uh, taking the Lord's Supper, taking communion, breaking bread and drinking wine together. This was another part of their worship. See, there's something special that happens when we share this meal together. When we, when we break the bread and pour the wine so I can't believe all the songs we were, I, John and I didn't discuss this, but all the songs this morning have just been like spot on for, for where this sermon is headed. 
there's something special that happens when we share this meal. Uh, Paul, when uh, he's writing his letter to the church in Corinth, and he's given them instructions on, on how to do communion because they had messed it up spectacularly. And he says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you declare the Lord's death until he comes. So what is he saying? He's saying that when we share the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming the gospel. We're declaring the gospel to one another. Whenever you uh, break the bread and drink the wine, what you're saying is, hey, Jesus died for me. His punishment means I don't have to be punished. His sacrifice means that I can go free. This is what we do together. The, the actual act of breaking bread and taking communion together is declaring the gospel to each other. And in this, I can't think of a better encouragement for a Christian, can you? I can't think of a better encouragement. This is why meeting together on a Sunday morning as the church gathered is so important. Because we declare the gospel of Jesus to each other and there's no greater encouragement. Uh, Augustine, who's, you, you probably know him, or you've heard of his name at least. You don't, not, you don't know him like, oh, hey, hey, August, what's up? No, you know who he is, maybe. One of the great church fathers. And he said this when he's describing the sacraments of baptism and communion. And this is where we explain what a sacrament is. He says, the sacraments are an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. The, sacward, the sacraments, the communion meal specifically in this context, is an outward sign of something that has happened inwardly in us, right? In that sense, the Lord's Supper is the, visible, is the word made visible. It's a powerful declaration that Jesus has died. And this is why we celebrate together. And what we see here in this church in Troas and in Acts chapter 20 is that the community of the saints gathering together to, to give and receive spirit-filled encouragement through word and sacrament together. John Stott, theologian, he uh, puts it better than I ever could. And he says this, what builds up the church more than anything else is the ministry of God's word as it comes to us through scripture and sacrament, audibly and visibly, declaration and drama. I love, I love that phrase, like declaration and drama. In the preaching, uh, we, we hear the word of God declared. In the Lord's Supper, we see the drama. It's the, it's the gospel dramatized. The declaration is the gospel proclaimed. The Lord's Supper is the gospel demonstrated for us. I love that. And the church here gathered weekly specifically for these purposes. For these purposes, And it's the greatest form of encouragement we have. Sometimes when I uh, talk to people, even within village, I get the impression that, well, let's just say it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that the central gathering is, is just another part of church, that it's no more or no less important than any other parts of the church. And, and in some senses that's true, but, but there is something special that happens when the church meets together. And if you allow me two more minutes, I'm going to explain it to you. There's always more going on in church than meets the eye. Our last passage this morning, turn with me to Hebrews 12. I love Hebrews because it's mental sometimes. Love it. Hebrews 12, we're going to read from verses 18 to 24. 
For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. This sounds terrible. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying uh, was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, the writer of Hebrews is saying, this is not what we're doing when we gather. It's not like this. Here he describes what it's like when the church gathers together. Listen to this. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angel, angels in festal gathering. Wow. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now there's lots of Old Testament uh, references and symbolism in there that we don't have time to go into. But what this passage is saying is that when we meet together, when we gather together as the body of Christ... Something special is happening. We're gathered to the living God first and foremost. I mean, that's pretty awesome, isn't it? We're gathered, we're gathered not in front of, not before. We're gathered to the living God. He gathers us to himself. We're gathered to innumerable angels. What is that? That's incredible. We're gathered as the assembly of those who are enrolled in heaven. If you're a Christian this morning, that's you. And when we do this, we're not just gathering as these, you know, 100 people in this room. We're gathered with every believer that has ever believed in the name of Jesus. We're gathered with all the names that are enrolled in heaven. And we're gathered to Jesus. We're gathered to Jesus first and foremost, whose blood has sealed our covenant, whose blood, which we represent with the wine, whose blood means that we can be part of this, means that we get to go free, means that we are part of the family of God. And I think we often forget this, don't we? I do, honestly. I think we forget that, that actually when the church gathers, it's a foreshadowing of, of, of what is to come in the new creation. It's a foreshadowing of what we'll be doing forever and ever. <laughs> With, at the risk of sounding like a heretic, when the church gathers, it's a wee bit of heaven. Right? Take encouragement from this. And when we forget it, I think there's two things that happen. Either we become so complacent that we, we just don't bother to come or we don't make the effort when we know we should. Or it just becomes habitual and we just come and it means nothing and we don't allow it to impact our lives. But my challenge is this, and this is where I finish. The church gathered for the explicit purposes of hearing the word of God declared and sharing the Lord's Supper together is the greatest form of spiritual, spirit-filled encouragement. This is where we gain strength. It's like, I've used this before, it's like we come in at half time. And either you're coming in and you're winning and you get encouragement and, and you go back out and, and you're more encouraged or you're coming in, you've been beat up and you're 4-0 down and you get built up, and you get your wounds bandaged, and you get encouraged, and you're sent back out again. So come to gathering. Don't just come to take. Come to participate. By being here, you are not just receiving encouragement, you're giving encouragement. And in a minute, we're going to come, and we're going to declare the Lord's death to one another.
Isn't that awesome? We're going to actually impart strength to each other by sharing this meal together. So let's not be indifferent about gathering. Let's not treat it as normal. It's not ordinary. It's actually extraordinary. It's in a very real sense, we're practicing what we will be doing forever and ever when Jesus comes. When we gather, we're partaking of the very blessing that Jesus died to obtain for us. You don't like church? Well, this is what Jesus died to obtain for you, that we can be gathered to the living God. And we get to practice that here and now. And then when he comes and redeems the earth and restores the earth, we will be gathered to the living God in person forever and ever. So let's practice that now. Let's be excited about being together. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to declare the Lord's death to each other. Uh, Father, I just want to give you praise and thanks that when we meet together, we're gathered to the living God. We're gathered with innumerable angels. We're gathered with and to all those enrolled in heaven. Jesus, thank you that you died uh, so that we could be part of this blessing. Thank you that you've obtained this blessing for us through your blood and through your body broken. And Father, I pray that as those of us that are Christians come to the table this morning, uh, that we wouldn't lose sight of that. Lord, I pray that this morning we would uh, spiritually encourage each other by declaring your death to each other through the, the dramatization of the gospel that is the bread and the wine. Lord, let us come willingly to the table. Let us come humbly to the table. Let us come ready to encourage each other, our brothers and sisters, some of us who feel like we're on top of the mountain, some of us who feel like we're in the depths of the sea. But we all need encouragement in you, Lord. Do something special in the next few minutes as we respond to your word being preached. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice.